Hello, and thank you for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites. Renoites is the weekly interview show where I, your host, Connor McQuibby, talk to all sorts of folks from Northern Nevada, people who are doing interesting and important work, something a little bit different every week. Today on the show, excited to welcome Inyaki Arieta Barrow. He's the head of the Basque Library, the John Bilbao Basque Library at UNR. I have long wanted to do an episode about Basque history and the importance of Basque culture here in the Reno area and in Northern Nevada, especially in our rural communities. And finally, at long last, I have done the Basque episode. I'm very excited to have such a great guest for it. I learned a ton. I remember learning a little bit about Basque history in my early education, and I've always known that there's an important connection to the Basque people here in Nevada. And it was great to sit down with someone who was really an expert on the topic and learn so much more about both the Basque history in the Basque country and the Basque diaspora here in northern Nevada. Renoites is a community-oriented, listener-supported, listener-funded project, and you can help make sure that it is financially sustainable. This show takes a lot of time, a lot of effort to put together. Finding guests, editing, scheduling, recording, all of those things take a lot of time, and you can show your support and help the show reach more people here in the area by contributing financially. I have an account on Patreon. Patreon is a website where listeners can support creators, whether it's podcasters, artists, musicians, anyone who's creating something and wants to be able to accept direct support from people can do so. If you go to patreon.com slash renoites, you can learn more. You can sign up for as little as $3 a month. I have different levels, $3, $6, $10, Whatever you can afford or whatever you think this show is worth, $3 level is about a buck an episode or so. If you're willing to support the show financially, support local media, and hopefully help this show continue to exist, please check that out. It's patreon.com slash renoites. And I'm also trying to include some bonus perks for patrons, things like early access to episodes, some bonus content, bonus segments from episodes. Check it out. Again, patreon.com slash renoites. Thank you so much to all of the folks who are supporting the show already. Really, it has been great to have people who have supported this show month after month. Thank you so much. Your support means more than just the financial support. It really does let me know that you value the work I'm doing here, and I hope you understand how grateful I am. If you have suggestions for guests, feedback, ideas, anything like that, get in touch. I am on Instagram. That's my most common social media and on Facebook at Renoites. Send me a message on there, or you can email me anytime. My address is Connor, C-O-N-O-R at Renoites.com. And now this week's guest on the podcast from the John Bilbao Basque Library at UNR, Inyaki Arieta Barrow. Inyaki Arieta Barrow, head of the John Bilbao Basque Library at UNR, Welcome to Renoites. Good morning, Coronor. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I've long wanted to do an episode about Basque culture and kind of like the Basque impact in Northern Nevada, because it's something that ever since I've been a kid that I've mm-hmm. been vaguely aware of. I feel like at some point, maybe in elementary school, we might have had like a short lesson, but I know almost nothing. And I think most people's only or one of the few associations they have is maybe they've been to a Basque restaurant or they've yeah. seen a Basque restaurant. But we have a like pretty strong connection with Basque history here in a way that most places in the United States don't. I'm going to start with a, the very, very basics for people who didn't even have the elementary school lesson mm-hmm. uh, with some basic kind of like Basque history. Can you just start by explaining who are the Basque people? Where do they come from? What is a Basque person or area? <laughs> That's a good question. Yeah. <laughs> so Basques are 
small people, around 3 million people in Europe, that live in the Basque country, which is also a small country, around 20,000 square kilometers, more or less like Clark County, mm. just in the corner of the Bay of Biscay in Europe, as I say, in between mainland Europe and, and the Iberian Peninsula. These people that nowadays are a stateless nation, meaning that they don't, they are not an independent country per se, are nowadays divided between the Republic of France, north of the Pyrenees, and the Kingdom of Spain, south of the Pyrenees. Mm. They have been around for quite a bit, a long time. Probably the most interesting feature of Basque culture is Euskara or Basque language, which is a non-Indo-European language, the only non-Indo-European language in Western Europe, meaning that it's not related to Spanish or French or any other Western European language, like English or German or Italian. So that's a very interesting feature because that means that People speaking that language have been in that area, in that corner of the Bay of Biscay, for at least 5,000 years, speaking mm. a language similar to the one that they speak today. Yeah. And that is very, very unusual. As I say, it's the only case in, in Western Europe. We mm -hmm. have languages, most of them coming from Latin in Southern Europe, and Basque is one of the few in Europe that is not coming from those larger yeah. groups. And along with that language, these people have maintained their own specific culture in regards to traditions, in regards to social organization, in regards to festivities that are different from other peoples in the, in the area. Mm -hmm. Is part of that the geography of the area, right? Because you mentioned the Pyrenees and mm -hmm. that a lot of this Basque tradition, these are in the mountains, right? And is that part of what kept it separate from having as much influence from the neighboring countries over the, mm -hmm. you know, millennia? So the short answer is not, because what happens is that one thing is being in a culturally different, another one is being geographically separated. And that's not the case, even if sometimes we have that impression, if we look into the map, that Basques have been living in the in the very mountainous areas, they actually live in one of the two areas where you can cross from the Iberian Peninsula to main, mainland Europe. Hmm. So the Basque country on the western side of the Pyrenees and Catalonia on the eastern side are the two areas that connect Spain and France and even Portugal to mainland Europe. Okay? So it's not geographically isolated. The culture has been preserved because of the willingness of that people, mm. not because it has been necessarily imposed by the geography of the area. Okay. So Basques have been in contact with other countries and people around them, and even farther away in Europe, in, in Northern Europe, we have Basque presence from the early Middle Ages in in America, Basques were traveling to, to Newfoundland, 
at least from 16th century, probably earlier, in contact with Iceland, Ireland, hmm. and other areas. So sometimes we have that impression that are an isolated country and isolated people, but they are uh, actually not. They are having part of the main cultural currents in Europe mm -hmm. from the Middle Ages, but at the same time maintaining their own very specific cult. Yeah, I think that my understanding is that a lot of the the history of the Basque people is the work to preserve their own their own land, their own culture in the midst of a lot of, you know, like political changes in the area over a long time, right? Can we go back to the language a little bit? Because I think that's so fascinating that you, so you mentioned it's the non-Indo-European language, it's its own thing. And that tells you that they've been in the same place for a really long time. Can you talk just a little bit more about kind of language being a distinguishing feature of a culture, right? Like how mm -hmm. having your own language that is distinct from others creates, you know, a distinct culture for yourself and a distinct identity in a way that maybe, you know, neighboring countries with similar languages might not have quite the same. Mm -hmm. So that actually happens, you know, you share some kind of worldview when you share that language. So that helps maintain it, that cohesiveness of the community helps maintaining a strong communication. And at the same time, it's, it's not necessarily a separate thing, you know. Basques, for most of the history we have known there, have spoken other languages in, in regards to communicating with other people around them. So we know that in southern Navarre, Hebrew was spoken, obviously Latin, and the languages derived from Latin, modern Spanish or French, but also Occitan or Navarrese Romance have been spoken in the Basque country in order to, to communicate with others. And also most of the administration tasks, as in general in Europe, having, having processed, let's say, using Romance languages since the Middle Ages. In, in a, both internally, in the sense that have been embraced by the community and by the local uh, communities and local governments, but also, unfortunately, in, with an external imposition. So, especially since middle 18th century, what we see is that the governments in, in Spain and France more and more try to impose their mm. own view of how that society should work. In some period of times, up to banning the use of the Basque language in the area. So the most recent time that that happened was during Franco's dictatorship in Spain, when for some years, speaking uh, Basque will get you in trouble. Uh, actually, it could be fine. Uh, you could be prosecuted if you spoke in Basque. We have seen that in formal education too, where Basque was not part of the school languages that were mm. acceptable, and where children that use Basque were actually bullied and by the system itself and, and were not allowed to, to use their own 
home language. Mm -hmm. Okay. So yeah, in, in part, something that defines, I think, Basque culture today, and that sense of identity is the idea of preservation, mm -hmm. of taking care of your own culture, of your own language. For, for a, again, a country that is not very large, even in the European context, and it's surrounded by two large cultural and political powers. So being that a small language surrounded by Spanish and French, <laughs> it's, it's not easy, right. for sure. Yeah. Tell me more about kind of the political status of the Basque country, right? So you said it's not its own country, but it is sort of semi-autonomous region right now. Mm -hmm. And that hasn't always been the case. Like you said, there's always been attempts from neighboring countries to kind of take over the Basque mm -hmm. country, right? Can you just talk a little bit about the history of kind of the political struggle of maintaining that as uh, not just the culture, but of the, you know, political power mm -hmm. of the Basque country as, you know, autonomous and independent? So during the Middle Ages, which is the moment where most modern states in Europe do have their origin in one kingdom or a couple of kingdoms, that will be the core of what are nowadays, I don't know, Italy or France or Germany. Well, in some cases like Germany, we talk about tens of, of smaller lands that become a larger state. Mm -hmm. But during that period of time, what when those embryos of modern states are born in Europe. What we see in the Basque country is that uh, the Basques create their own kingdom, the kingdom of Iruña or Pamplona first, that later becomes the kingdom of Navarre. Uh, it's a kingdom that, in comparison with the with the others in it, the same area, will be small and less powerful, and that will create increasing tension with the larger kingdoms in the area. Something similar to what will happen in the British Islands or mm. something like that to give you. It's not exactly the same, but similar. Okay? Uh, so what happens is that in the early 16th century, and the kingdom of Navarre is conquered by the kingdom of Castile, uh, while the northern side of that kingdom maintains its independence uh, at least formally, until the French Revolution. During that modern era, between the 16th and 18th century, local governments are developed in a way that it's similar, but not exactly the same what we see in the main areas of those larger kingdoms, with the idea of trying to preserve as much of possible of that independence of self organization. Uh, what we will see after the French Revolution and during the early years of the 19th century in what is nowadays Spain is that those both, both powers are trying to organize themselves as modern states, as in a nation building process that in the cultural arena tries to erase any difference between areas and to uniformize as much as possible. Mm. And that creates a lot of tension, especially in areas where intense 
cultural difference is alive, like is the case of the Basque country. So we'll see during the 19th century that those two main powers, France and Spain, will try to normalize, to uniformize the lands under their power, including the Basque country, and that will create a strong rejection in the area, both in cultural terms with the enactment of, of and recognition and awareness of a proper culture, proper own culture, let's say, and identity, and also in the political arena with a number of different wars, especially in the southern area under the Spanish monarchy. And these are like, would you describe them as kind of like, I don't, I almost want to say civil wars, but if the Basque country considers itself separate, it's not really a civil war from their perspective. But did Spain kind of see this as a civil war between different parts of Spain? That's correct. Mm. As well, yeah, even internally in the Basque country, we'll, we'll see them both as power struggle with external powers and internal struggle because mm. there will be always Basques that are pretty comfortable living under one of those powers mm -hmm. and will, will align with them. And that happens in the 19th century and also during the 20th century, especially during the yeah. Spanish War and the and Franco's dictatorship. Mm -hmm. And during that time, since there's kind of the, the northern and the southern more associated with France and more associated with Spain, what was the dynamic between those two parts, right? If Spain didn't kind of feel they had claim to the northern Basque, was there also conflict between northern and southern in the Basque country, or was there kind of a united approach there? Kind of like, what did the northern Basque, how did they engage or were part of the war in Spain? Okay, so northern Basques and the northern Basque country as an area will become a kind of refuge for mm. uh, southern Basques. Uh, so they, they will be supporting uh, the Basque coast, and they, they will be welcoming refugees from the southern side, and they will be like a stronghold mm -hmm. in the preservation of Basque culture when actually it's banned in the south. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that everyone shares the same idea to be a separate country or nothing like that, but it's a sh there, there is a share understanding of being part of the same culture. Mm. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about how the Basque people came to Nevada. So during a lot of this period and and before, there was a lot of migration from Europe to mm. North America, Central America. Can you talk a little bit about the kind of Basque role in that and why there's such a concentration of Basque people coming to particularly the West? Mm -hmm. So Basques will be part of the of Castilian and French efforts in France from, from the start, from the 16th century, as part of those imperial efforts. And also as themselves, especially in the case of Newfoundland, in the case of whale hunting, where Basque will be one of the, of the main cultural groups with present in that area. Hmm. Now, what we nowadays call the Basque diaspora in the Western United States has its origins in migration happening in the, the second half of the 19th century and after that, from 1849 to the early 70s. Okay? 
And actually, the first migrants arriving first into California and then into Nevada will be coming not directly from the Basque country, but from Southern America, where Basque presence was very strong already in the, in the early 19th century. In some cases, because of economic reasons, economic migrants, but also in some cases, like the first ones arriving into Nevada who were Altuve brothers, because they, they, they escaped from the country as after losing the first Carlist War, which is one of those wars that we were talking about mm -hmm. earlier. So they will arrive into Nevada, second half of the, of the 19th century, and they will start a process of chain migration, meaning that they will start their own businesses, first cattle ranch, then sheep industry, and they will be looking for help for those. And what usually happens with that is that you will try to bring your friends and your neighbors because those are the people you understand with mm -hmm. and with whom you have a good relationship. So that will be bringing more Basques from the, from the Basque country to the West. And not only to the West, we see Basques also arriving to, to New York, for example, the oldest Basque association in the United States right now is the New York Basque Association, Basque Club. But they, their presence is becomes stronger and more visible in the Western states, where again, they will be bringing people from their hometowns and family members and the like. So they first, as I say, they will be focusing in, in ranching, both cattle and then sheep, and then we'll be moving to other businesses, mm -hmm. restaurants, boarding houses, even politics. We have example here with Paul Lachalde or other areas of the society and business. Mm -hmm. And they also become visible because they actually try to preserve as they are doing in their home mm -hmm. country. Yeah, that was one of the things that I was reading when I was mm. researching a little bit is it seems that a lot of times there's an initial desire to uh, assimilate and integrate into the place that you're moving, but then future generations want to recover or maintain the culture that might have been lost in that assimilation process. Can you talk a little bit about that, kind of the, the early efforts to mm -hmm. preserve the Basque culture kind of before it was lost? So that's absolutely true. And that happens with almost every migrant group around the world, I would say. We see it happening nowadays with South American migrants that will try to absolutely forget the Spanish or other languages they speak in favor of English with the idea of becoming American, you know. Mm. And that's also the case for Basques, or for at least most of the Basques when they arrive. This idea that joining in American society means forgetting about being Basque. So we see. Robert Lachalte tells this story about uh, when they started school, there is that day where his mountains uh, will say, okay, we are done speaking Basque in this home. We will only speak English moving forward. So they actually don't preserve that language for that second generation. So we see the parents speaking Basque, Dominique Lachalte, 
writing to his cousins in Basque and receiving their answers in Basque. But second generation, the children born here, not speaking a word in Basque. And then what, what we see after that varies, but th there is that idea of trying to preserve or recover that Basque language. So as a marker of identity first, in the sense of we'll see a lot of Basques that are able to see a couple of words in Basque and they will use them. But also we see more and more Basques in, in the Western United States, third, fourth generation Basques trying to learn Euskara and the Basque language. So for example, here at UNR, we have Basque language classes, the North American Basque organizations, the Federation of Basque clubs around the country offers Basque language classes. Also here in Reno, they are opportunities to learn it online and, and younger generations will take advantage of that. Mm. And there is even a pre-K in Boise, for example, and where some of the kids will attend and speak in Basque while they are there. Oh, that's funny. Well, I mean, I think that learning language from a young age, my understanding is that that is the best way to learn any language is when you grow up speaking it. So have you found that as more people speak Basque and maybe have children that they're introducing it to at a younger age instead of trying to learn this when they're adults, is that part of kind of maintaining the culture is Basque families and Basque culture from a young age? So that it's been difficult because it is. I mean, we are talking about a population of around 60 or 65,000 people in among millions, you mm. know, so... And even in that population, the amount of people that speaks, speak Basque is low. But I think that there, there is that idea that it's good to introduce them to Basque culture and Basque language in general. And so at least they learn some words and they learn dance and learn about the food and things like those. And having them in touch with that culture, it's important for most of the Basque families I, I know about. Yeah. yeah, I want to ask you more about the visible symbols of Basque culture that we're familiar with. But to start with, you mentioned sheep herding, and I think that a lot of people have the immediate image of the, the Basque sheep herder, which is certainly true, but certainly old as well. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Can you just talk a little bit about that being the enduring image or the main image that people have of the Basque and its relevance today or what it might obscure by focusing too much on one thing? Let me tell you a story for trying to explain that. A couple of months after I arrived here, I took a taxi and the driver, he really noted my accent and as often happens, they will ask, oh, so where are you coming from and business or pleasure or things like those. <laughs> <laughs> and when I told him that I was Basque, he was Oh, I went to the Basque country once a few years ago, and I was very surprised. I was like, why were you surprised? Well, I was expecting that everyone would be a ship herder, and that's always not, not the case now, but it wasn't the case even when most of the Basques were coming here. Ship herding is part of Basque culture culturally, and it has been part of the Basque economy 
forever. But even in the 19th century, it was already a small part of the vast economy. We are seeing a country that is becoming an industrial hub in Europe, you know. So the vast country, the vast country nowadays, it's a service-oriented economy with a history of a very strong industrial background. Nothing really where you can see sheep on the street. Does that make sense? Yeah. So he was very surprised about that. So in part that what that, that idea of Basques up sheep, a sheep herder does is separating that from what is really happening in the Basque country. But on the other hand, what happens is that most of the men that arrive and during, during the last part of the 19th century and the early 20th century were arriving into Nevada as sheep herders. That's absolutely true. Um, it's also true that very soon a service economy will be growing around them for serving them, but also for serving the larger community. And it's always uh, also certainly true that men are not going to be the only one arriving to Nevada. So most of the women that will be arriving here will be or supporting camps for the sheep herding industry or supporting the ranch or supporting later boarding houses or restaurants. Mm -hmm. So as humans, we like things simple, you know. We like the idea that someone is something and that's it. But usually what happens is that societies and cultures, even small societies and cultures, are much more complex than that idealized or romanticized image we have of those. Mm -hmm. Sheep herding has been key for Basques arriving into the West, for sure. It's obviously not so important now, but it's not so important for the country either. So maintaining that makes sense if we understand where it's coming from mm -hmm. and how it's related to the Basque country and the Basque diaspora nowadays. Yeah. I hate to ask about food because that's oh. also another like obvious marker of mm -hmm. a lot of cultures, but it's also another frequently oversimplified representation of what a culture is. But we'll do it anyways. Can you sure. talk a little bit about Basque food and why that is such an important part of the culture? And that's one of the things that we also closely associate with the Basque in northern Nevada is Basque food. Can you just talk about what Basque food is and why that has been kind of a very prominent marker of Basque culture here? Uh, that's, it, it's a deeper question that it looks like, because as you say, it's very easy to, uh, again, simplify a little bit and only think about specific cultures only related to, to their food. Mm -hmm. And sometimes that could be the case about Basque culture in, here in Nevada, but it's also the case that it's actually quite prominent in the food landscape in Nevada in general. And it has been, again, one of the industries where Basques have been strong since at least a century ago. So what we see here in Nevada and other states in the West is very specific Basque food is going to be served in areas where Basque population is strong. Like here in Reno, we see it also in Elko or in Boise, in Idaho, for example. You know, And it, it's one of the ways to make yourself visible also. 
And it's interesting that Basques that go into the food industry will go as Basques. So they try really to be Basque also when they are doing business. Mm. And that's why they say, hey, this is, we are Basques, this is our food. So while it could sound as a oversimplification, uh, it's also important to look into why that happens. Because in general, that's not going to happen with all, all cultural groups. It happens with some Italians, for example, or Chinese later. But it doesn't happen with all cultural groups in a way. So it's interesting to think why that happens. And I think that it's again connected to that idea of preserving uh, what you want to preserve from your own culture. Now, in regards to the cultural, uh, to the food landscape here in Nevada, what we see is a representation of the areas where the people that arrive in here in the, from the Basque country, what they will be having there for food, and also very much connected to sheep herding. So we'll see a lot of meat. While in the Basque country, for example, where food is also very important, is one of those areas for foodies that we see in, <laughs> in Europe, where I will see a lot of Michelin stars and, and big names in the food industry. Well, the, 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 the food we see there is more diverse in the sense that, which we'll see a lot of fish, for example, or seafood that mm. we don't see here, which those are to absolutely make sense, you know, because yeah. when you are in the mountains or you are in Reno, Nevada, 100 years ago, it wasn't really easy to really do any, anything related to fish. Mm. So it's, again, it's a simplification, but I think that it has a stronger and deeper connections to, to Basque culture that we sometimes, we sometimes think. Yeah. Let's talk a little bit about the library. So you're the head of the, <laughs> the John Bilbao Basque Library at UNR, and in all this talk about kind of preserving Basque culture and, and saving things, right, that is what libraries do, is they collect and save the information. <laughs> so can you talk a little bit about what the library is at UNR? So that you mentioned that there's some Basque studies at UNR, but mm -hmm. talk about the library. What do you do there at the library, and why, why is that important? So what is nowadays the Yomil Babasque Library, which is one of the specialized libraries at the University of Nevada Reno Libraries, has its origin in the late 60s when the Basque Studies program uh, was founded. When that happened, the Basque Studies program was part of the Desert Research Institute. And one of the difficulties they face when they start the program is the lack of materials and information resources for researching about Basques. So the founders of the program, William Douglas and Robert Lachal, one of the things, and I think Waitsley will do, is to try to create their own library. Why? Because at the time, it wasn't very easy, really, to bring books and other resources from Europe in general. And specifically from the Basque country, the Basque country, most of the countries is still under Franco's dictatorship. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not like it's everything is absolutely banned, but it's not easy to publish, especially in Basque, and it's not easy to export from there or import from here. Okay? So they will invite John Bilbao 
to join the program and to, to be the director of the library. John Bilbao was a bibliographer. He was specialized in collecting references about any work focused on Basque history and culture. He will come here and really led the start of the library. They will acquire two large collections in the Basque country. They will bring them here, the Beirin and the Goninagre collections. And those will be the core of the that new library they are creating. And while they continue researching, and John Bilbao himself continues to work on his opera magna, which is the Eusko bibliographia of the Basque bibliography, he will keep working on growing the Basque collection at UNR. And they will start with those two main collections, but they will start. Uh, also collecting resources here in, in the West, and they will start co compiling their own research collections, where, they, for example, the main work published about Basques in the West here in the U.S. during the 70s will be American work, the Americans in Basque. Okay? And this work is authored by Douglas and Bilbao, and what they will do is to, with all the information they have compiled during their research, they will create a research collection at the Basque Library. So that way they will be creating resources for additional research. And that will continue until Bilbao's retirement and the library will continue growing and compiling resources related both to the Basque country itself and to the to the diaspora especially. So nowadays we are mostly focused in, in the preservation area, we are mostly focused on the vast diaspora and, and helping the communities both in their own places or bringing resources to the library and preserving the archival collections they create, both communities or families or even personal papers. In the research area, we are here to support the Center for Basque Studies, uh, which is the only Basque Studies doctoral program in the U.S. So the center is our main patron, our main user in that area. And we also conduct our own research projects related to preservation. So, for example, we are working now with the Boise State University and California State University Bakersfield on a project to preserve, to document and preserve Basque tree carvings. Mm, yeah, the ar arbor glyphs, right? Arbor glyphs. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, tell me about the arbor glyphs. Well, that's, <laughs> I can't talk about that forever, but arbor is so, such a difficult word, really. Uh, so I will say tree carvings as we move forward, but yeah, yeah the technical word is <laughs> arbor glyphs. So uh, tree carvings are part of that sheep herding culture that. Basque develop here in the in the West, and they are a very Western feature. Okay, uh, they don't exist in the Basque country, and they evolve here as part of that new sheep herding experience for Basques. Sheep herding in the Basque country, it's small scale sheep herding, so it's mostly related to farms and to as a another piece for that 
farming economy. But I don't know, flocks could be a couple of hundreds at most. Uh, even if cheese culture is very important, that's the size of the flock in the basket. When, when Basques arrive here, they will find themselves with flocks of two or three thousands or even more sheep. And they will spend weeks by themselves in the mountains, in the Sierra Nevada or the Rocky Mountains, alone in general, with few visits by campers, maybe once a week or so, for bringing them food and other, other tools they will need. So during that loneliness, <laughs> one of the things they will do is start writing and drawing on aspen trees. And they will develop a whole new art form during that, that solitude. And so we will find thousands of aspen trees with written words in Basque. Uh, with Basque farms and drawn there, with melancholic calls to Ama, which is mom in Basque, they reflect, I think, in a in a very intense way that loneliness, that idea of trying to to be present. That idea, the most usual tree carvings will be a name, the name of the ship herder, update and a place name, usually in the Basque country. So usually f where they are coming from. You know? mm. that I, so that's, and that's repeat once and again, and we'll see some trees with one name and maybe 10 dates. Well, the ship has been there, 1936, 1937, 1938, and so on. That idea of reaffirming yourself or telling, hey, I was here, really, you know. And at the same time, connecting with your experience here and your, how you are missing your, your country and how are you, miss, you are missing your family and how you are going home once you are done <laughs> with your contract. Even if most of them didn't go, didn't really go back, they stay here, but they, they, they didn't love it. You know, solitude, it's difficult when it's one day or two days, but when it's weeks, one week after another, taking care of not very smart animals as <laughs> sheep are. One thing that we don't find in, in tree carvings are sheep. Hmm. We find a lot of animals. And but no sheep. They, I think that they didn't want to yeah. reflect them. Yeah. <laughs> Over the sheep, right? <laughs> yeah, they are, they are done with the sheep. Tell me about the challenge of preserving that, right? Because libraries yeah. usually, you know, you can, you can keep records of books, you can keep copies of photos, but you can't exactly put a tree in a library. So what does the project look like as far as preserving those? Because, you know, the, those trees aren't going to last forever. So, yeah, and that's absolutely, yeah. absolutely, and that's the good summary, I think, of what challenges we face with this project. And with this kind of, of materials, you know, we are, as you say, very used to work with paper in general in so many different forms. We are more and more used to work with digital resources, but no, preserving trees is not part of our, our skills. And... Yeah, one of the things that the, the aspen trees die. So 
and there is no way we can take thousands of trunks and bring them to libraries. They have some small efforts in that area. We have a trunk that came from Wyoming. We have some barks that the Tahoe National Forest brought to the library a few years ago. But it's impossible to think that we could preserve thousands of trees. So what we are doing with that group I was mentioning earlier, and especially with the ATUC one library and the university libraries, is to develop a project. First, to standardize the way that tree carvings are being described, and then to create digital models in 3D of those trees. Mm. So we are trying to develop a way that different groups, community members, could create 3D models or at least photographs of those trees and describe those in a way that it's accessible for the future. We are trying to make grow a network of community partners that are interested in, in this area and also government organizations like the Forest Service and the BLM so they can provide their own resources to try and to preserve those in a digital way. So this project, I will say, is the last iteration of various efforts that have been happening since the 70s to preserve the tree carvings. And one of the first efforts in that area is the collection created by Philip and Jean Earl. Philip and Jean, they learn about tree carvings just hiking around Reno, and they were in love with them when they learned about that. So they, they were like, we should create something to kind of reproduce them. Uh, one of the issues, uh, you would think, oh, maybe you can photograph them. And you can photograph them, but one of the issues is that they are not playing. They go around the mm. tree. Uh, so that is challenging when you take a picture. You usually are not going to be able to, with one picture, you are not going to be able to reproduce the whole tree carvings. In some cases you will be, but in most of the cases you will not. So a general will develop a process to create a copy of those three carvings. They will uh, wrap the tree with muscle and with black walks. Jim will go around and mark the carving that is under mm. it. And they will create another problem for librarians and archivists because those reproductions are themselves so strong and so artistic that we actually want to preserve them right. also. <laughs> So a couple of years ago, we started talking with Jean about that collection and she donated that to the, to the Basque Library. And they are beautiful, that black and white contrast with those. She had an eye for creating those because if you just go and make a carbon copy of those without any curation or selection, you just go, will go up black canvas, you know, but she was very careful on trying to select which, which line should be part of that reproduction. So they are beautiful. And then we, we have them now at the library. It's great that 
while we are working on this new generation preservation effort, we are also taking care of those first efforts and showing them to the to the public that can enjoy them. Now at the library, without the need of visiting a grove, like 10,000 feet. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned photography, and I know there's also a large photography mm-hmm. collection. Can you just talk a little bit about how having visual resources helps people understand Basque culture? Because, I mean, we can read books all day, but I think a lot of people have a mm-hmm. much stronger immediate impact from seeing something visually. So can you talk a little bit about the photograph collection and why that's important? Visual recognition, visual approach to uh, cultural phenomena, it's it's undoubtedly important. There is no way... Well, you can understand Basque dances just reading a description of those, but I think it's much powerful to see a photograph or even a video recording of those dances. It's like the difference between print music and hearing a recording of that being performed. So I think that it's important for us to preserve that visual representation of those activities that Basques in Nevada are engaged on, that being dances or sports, or even just getting together to have lunch. So we, every year we add a number of pictures related to those collections, to those activities, and we also hold around a collection of around 25,000 photographs from both from the Basque country itself and from the Basque diaspora, with everything related to, to Basque cultural history. So that being architecture in the Basque country, for example, of the churches and the farms and the like, things that we don't see here in the West. On the other hand, with Basque activities and Basque cultural activities in the West, everything related to sheep herding, but also Basque festivals. The tree carvings themselves, we have a fair amount of pictures of, of, of the tree carvings starting in the 70s, and also sheep herding, farming, and, and the like. So I think that it's important that being represented because, in some cases, because some of our users of our patrons, that's what they are looking for. How do I look like? How did they, my parents look like? How mm-hmm. did that festival that has been going on in Elko since the 50s, how did it look like in the 70s? Because it's different and yeah. you can see how that changes and how it evolves. Another important visual resource we have is our posters collection. We have around 6,000 posters coming again, both from the Basque country and from the diaspora related to all kinds of aspects of social life. Uh, from academic congresses to festivals organized by the Basque clubs to political demonstrations in the Basque country during the 80s. And they are very powerful in regards to design and variety. I'm, I'm very happy that that collection is going to be available online very soon. So I think that is one of those collections where we can approach for example, students and faculty in other areas related to political science or history or arts that aren't necessarily only Basque studies, but where the Basque case could be a 
case study for understanding other phenomena in other cultures. How can people learn more about Basque culture? How would you recommend people kind of learn more? Like I said, we don't really get a very thorough education. You have a ton of resources at the library. Mm -hmm. You mentioned Basque festivals. So for folks in Reno or in Northern Nevada who just want to learn more or engage or interact in a way that isn't overly academic, Mm -hmm. how should people kind of learn? I know there's a new mural down at Barbara Bennett Park. So the arts, I think, is a connection. Can you just give a couple of recommendations for folks who want to learn more? So. I will see, say, you mentioned the moral, but we are also seeing musicians performing Basque music. We have the Basque club here, Saspiak Bat. The Basque club organizes ton of activities around the year that are usually, most of the, the, those activities are open to the public, where, so anyone can attend them and they can learn about Basque food, if it's <laughs> a lunch or a dinner. But also other aspects of Basque culture, like dancing or sports or music, being performed by the community itself. So I think that that's a great opportunity for learning who these Basque neighbors are, so you know who they are. But you also see them being Basque themselves, if that makes sense. And so that I would say it's probably the non-academic way to approach that. There is also a lot of reading available online. You can learn Basque if you're interested, as I say, through through community organizations or through UNR if you are a student or faculty there. And obviously the, the, the Center for Basque Studies and the Basque Library are there. We are not, we are first academic institutions but we are open to the public, so anyone can approach us with specific questions if they are looking for, I don't know, speakers for a talk or something like that. We are always happy to be part of that. Just last week, I was talking with a guide of the Trachimedos Park Foundation that were organizing a hike that will go through the Bass National Monument in Rancho San Rafael, and he wanted to have some words about that. So we are always happy to share that with, with the community, more, more than happy, actually. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. Like I said, I have long wanted to do an episode about Bass culture in Northern Nevada because I know it's such an important thing, and it's taken me a while but I'm so glad, and I think I got the perfect guest for it too, because Thank you. <laughs> having someone who is so well-versed in everything from both the early history to what we're seeing right now, and especially about how we preserve it, I think is just so valuable. So thank you so much for, for taking the time to come on the show. Thank you so much, Connor. Miyasker. Listeners, thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode of Renoites, and special thanks to my guest, Inyaki Arya Tabaro from the John Bilbao Basque Library at UNR. Really great to learn so much about the Basque history and the Basque culture here in Northern Nevada. I've been wanting to do this episode for a long time and really appreciate that I was able to have the opportunity with such a great guest. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, spread the word. Send this one to people. Do you know Basque people? You should send them this episode. Do you know people who have eaten at a Basque restaurant? You should send them this episode. Do you have people who are interested in history? You should send them this episode. Do you have an elementary school teacher who taught you a lesson on Basque history when you were in fourth grade? Uh, you should send them a link to this episode. One of the things you can do as a listener is help spread the word about this show. Word of mouth is 
basically everything for a project like this, it really makes all the difference about whether I'm able to reach more people in the area and let them know about this show. I'm coming up on about three years or so of this show existing, and there are still so many people who live in the area, who listen to podcasts, who have no idea that there's a weekly long-form interview show. And they won't know unless you tell them. So tell your friends, tell your family, share posts on social media. If you click the share button, you know, like, comment, share on things I do on social media, that makes a world of difference for the algorithm, for your own social networks, all of those things. You don't even have to comment on it. Just hit share and okay. It makes a huge difference. Thank you so much for sharing, for supporting the show, for listening, even just for listening. I know you have a lot of options on how to spend your time. Thanks for choosing to spend an hour on this today. That's all I've got for you this week. Next week's guest on the podcast is Batuan Zadeh from Marmot Properties. Lots of news going on in Midtown lately. The Junkie Building has been purchased by Marmot. There is tons of news in the development world, and Marmot is a local developer that has done a ton of work, both in residential properties and commercial properties, historic buildings. And we had a really great conversation about how the development process works, what kind of decisions go into what gets developed and where. Tons of really great stuff, especially if you are interested in how Reno is growing and changing. That one is next Tuesday. I have a bunch of other great guests coming up this season. Thank you so much. Subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss any of those. And I'll see you all next week.